Last time on Dying Message Challenge, I asked our three amateur sleuths to name and design their own eccentric mansion inspired by the Ice Flow Mansion in the book Murder in the Crooked House. This game is called The Property Murders. Kate Esposito said, I feel like I would have to have a mansion uh, called Shoots and Ladders, wherein there were just lots of shoots and ladders all over it. Michael Savitsky said, My two main loves in life are Japanese-style hot springs and net cafes, so I have decided to combine them in my home. Neil Bardhand said, uh, This is the diner jukebox mansion. Uh, every room recreates a classic-style diner. Um, and has piped in music. In just a moment, I'll judge these entries and update you on the scores. Coming up today, we've got more challenges. We'll find out who was closest in guessing the solution to these murders. We'll crown a champion, and we'll have a book club. It's time for part two of Dying Message Challenge, Murder in the Crooked House. And we're back online together. It's been exactly one week since we recorded the first part of this uh, Dying Message Challenge. And in that time, three people were murdered. <laughs> three dun, dun, more dun. people. Probably more in the world. On that bleak note. <laughs> we're not um, looking up crime <laughs> statistics. But um, I will remind everybody that last week, you all had just read the first part of this book. It's a recently translated Japanese murder mystery novel called Murder in the Crooked House by Soji Shimada. And you all made your official attempts to try to solve the murder. So today we have to see how that all went and figure out who won. So my first thing I need to tell everybody is this is the second part of Dying Message Challenge, Murder in the Crooked House. It's not going to make much sense unless you've listened to the first part. We'll explain what's going on in more detail in that part. And it was a lot of fun. So you should definitely go check that out before you make some attempt to listen to this today. So um, now we need to do our introductions. Who am I? I'm your fictional detective turned game show host, Noah Max Levine. And at risk of putting this podcast in jeopardy, I double dare you to read this book before listening to our family feud today. To be clear, you don't have to read it. And we'll address the question of should you read the book in detail shortly. All right. Three amateur sleuths today competing for the title of detective champion and the privilege of recording an intro for the podcast. They are the mysterious wildcard, Neil Bardhan. Hey, that's me. Neil, you are a storyteller and comedian. You're also an improviser on Philly's long-running and crowd comedy team. So my question is, what would it mean to you to add detective champion to your biography, at least in your future appearances on this podcast? I would be honored to update the bio text file that I keep around for just such things. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, next up, we have the study to true crime enthusiast, Kate Esposito. Yeah. Kate, also, you're a veteran educator. You're a host of Blue Sky Ed podcast. You perform with our next challenger on the improv team, Daddy Issues. What do you think of like taking this format of competitive book clubs and using it to teach books in high schools? Oh, my God. It's like the dream. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. Multiple times while reading this book, I thought I could teach this. It would be a great way to get kids invested in reading is to give them a mystery novel. Is there money in this format? Can I profit? Can you profit off this podcast format with students? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. The world has gone to shit. And, you know, I think anything's up for grabs at this point. Will the prizes be uh, personal pen pizza coupons? Because then I'm sold. <laughs> That's what you got for reading in high school? Yeah, of course. You did? Yeah. 
Uh, I got tickets to Six Flags. I got the satisfaction of having finished a book. That's Ooh, what I got. Congratulations. <laughs> Noah got Six Flags tickets and all I got was a lousy personal pan pizza? All you had to do was read for 600 minutes, which is 10 hours. What? And keep a reading log. Wait, Michael, you were getting Book It pizzas in high school? When were you getting these pizzas? In grade school. Grade school, okay. For a uh, second, I thought, I thought you were talking about like reading books in high school for uh personal pan pizzas and i was like you oh no people having to be bribed to do your reading <laughs> <laughs> i did compete in a book competition once where and i got a trophy because i won the citywide competition with my team called the anonymous novelists which is my favorite team name ever that, Ooh, that's a great like quizzo team name right yeah. so so you all had to read like the same books and then answer questions about them? It was called Battle of the Books, which the next year was changed to Book Bowl because battle was too aggressive and violent. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, we had to read 10 books. Everybody read the same 10 books, each team. And then you had to answer questions about what happened. And we won. Okay, so it has been done before, a yes, competitive book. That's club. literally it the thing. Has. <laughs> it has. It has. Although I enjoy no this me. format, uh, you know, via podcast recording also. And, yeah. And I, I like the difference that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Kate, you're doing that as an extracurricular, whereas uh, what we were proposing earlier would be within the classroom. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Yes. This was completely voluntary, what we yeah. did. Well, um, it's long overdue. I need to introduce this other guy over here. He is our temporarily demoted anime expert, Michael Savitsky. <laughs> so, Michael, you'll be promoted to co-host status next week when we resume our regular episodes. Uh, we live together, and that's pretty much nonstop at the moment. So <laughs> will you ever forgive me if I crown someone else detective champion? I'll think about it. But first of all, uh, you said demoted. Am I getting paid to be the anime expert? Because I have not seen a paycheck yet. Um, I mean, I, I just ordered in from amazon a two pound bag of dark chocolate kit kats and i have been steadily feeding them to you that is true is that not payment <laughs> enough <laughs> very well and, and also michael i would like to add uh i'm hashtag team noah uh noah uh, is following the old principle that time is money he's given you a lot of his time in the past couple mm. months yes i don't know that he has a choice because we're locked <laughs> in a room together but that is true what's this a locked room <laughs> we usually do keep the door to our single roomish apartment locked so yes <laughs> how is everybody doing how are we feeling are we ex- we're excited today i have so many thoughts <laughs> I, 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 I yeah. have so many thoughts i'm delighted and frustrated with this uh, yes. with this book and and this author if i can separate the work from from the creator can you though? I mean, uh, what a great podcast discussion that will be. <laughs> I apparently the author has said a lot about what he thinks a murder mystery should be and has written a lot on the topic and you know he kind of promoted the genre. So there's a lot there to like hold him accountable for what he was trying to do and whether or not he did it. Mm. Mhm. We'll get into some of that, you yeah, know. Right. Okay. But with points. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you all points for the cliffhanger game, which was property murders. Uh, at the start of this episode, you heard everybody's entries, and I've decided to award points as following. Um, one point goes to Michael for the NetSprings mansion. Clever juxtaposition of things that could kill people because they're electric and watery, um, but least interesting uh, murder scenario to me. Wow, rude. Neil, uh, Jukebox Diner Mansion, very clever. 
interesting to see how someone turns that into a murder scenario. But Kate hit on something that like resonated with me because when I read the book, I was like, where are all the secret passages? There are no secret passages. And she created a mansion that's entirely secret passages. <laughs> so no uh, one won't let us buy a home unless it has secret passages in it. You can install oh my them God, once yes. you move in. No, I fully <laughs> approve. Oh, I think it, I think it really depends whether on on the, uh, the the base layout of the house, whether or not you can install secret passages. Would putting a bookshelf in front of a closet count? Is that secret passage enough? Yeah, you just take like what was a doorway and you put a bookshelf on either side, but it swings open. Oh, great! Something yeah. like that. Only yeah. if you can't tell that it swings open, yeah. and only if it doesn't disrupt the flow for the entire house. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, now that things are open plan, it's more tough. But let me uh, update everyone on the scores. Oh, yes. So uh, Kate got three, Neil got two, Michael got one, which brings our running totals to uh, Michael at 16 and a half, Neil at 19, and Kate at 20.5. Oof, I'm getting trounced. Don't, don't worry, you'll take, you'll take over my spot soon enough, I'm sure. <laughs> I have a confession to make before we go on that I have no recollection whatsoever of my description of my murder house. No, I don't remember saying it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. So... Our first challenge is also a public service announcement. It's time to wake up our listeners with a game I call Spoiler Morning. Uh-oh. So um, I think at this point, anyone who has listened to part one and is joining us today has either read the book, or if they haven't, they know enough to know if they would like to read the book. So my opinion is, if the book is up your alley and you think you're going to want to read it, you should probably read it before you listen to us spoil the murder, because the experience of, of reading through it and not knowing what's going to happen and then finding out at the end, I think is really incredible and you really enjoy it. On the other hand, you might be like, I can tell I'm not going to like this book. I'm never going to read it. So whatever, you'll just listen to the podcast. That's my opinion. Um, I want you all to give your opinion to our listeners on whether or not they should read the book, should they read it before they listen to the podcast. You don't need to agree with me. Just be persuasive. And of course, you can't use spoilers in your argument. The most persuasive argument wins. Unlike last time when I was slightly more prepared, I don't have turn orders written down, so it's going to be very arbitrary. <laughs> uh, Michael, Kate, and then Neil. Uh, so I enjoyed the book. Uh, it's not like a super long read, so you don't have to like invest a ton of time into it. Uh, it does have some problems, being that it was written by a Japanese man in the 80s, and it's pretty sexist like sweepingly across the board i don't know if there are any redeemable women in this book and i found that a little problematic uh but in general uh if you can look past that as you have to with quite a bit of japanese media it is a fun mystery the ending is uh, is it satisfying i don't know it's interesting <laughs> you tell our listeners the <laughs> ending is interesting so i don't know if you will feel satisfied should they read it I'm going to say, if you like mysteries, yes. Otherwise, probably not. Next up is Kate. Yeah, I'd recommend reading this book. It, it was very different than uh, most other things that I read. It is, it is a solid mystery novel in that there is little to no character development and or plot outside of the mystery. That said, I did find it entertaining, and I would recommend it for the ending, which I found to be one of the most hilariously wild endings i've read in a book in a long time i'm so excited to talk about it <laughs> thank you kate um neil what do you think i think listeners should listen to both of these podcast episodes first 
and then decide whether or not to read the book. Uh, <laughs> so my default answer is no, don't read the book. Listen to podcasts instead. Uh, I, I think the podcast will give you a really good sense of whether or not you're going to like it. Um, and uh, for some of you, this may be all that you need. Uh, for some others, you may be like, wow, this book sounds really wild and with some bazonkers details that I want to read for myself. Uh, let, let me do that. But um, pretty sure our hilarity and recaps will suffice for most people. Well, Neil, I can't argue with you that people should definitely listen to both episodes of the, of this dying message challenge. <laughs> Suck up, answer. Uh, so I also had to just be different from the two of you. I'd like to. You didn't. Um, I felt and it's gonna it's gonna cost you. Um, I'm putting... <laughs> Are you kidding me, Noah? <laughs> I think I think Kate gets two points for her answers, and I'm giving one to both Michael and Neil. Um, you both had good suggestions and good ideas, but I think Kate's enthusiasm sold me on reading it more than your kind of actually like, you know, evidence-based breakdowns sold me on, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not reading it. <laughs> you wanted persuasion, not, uh, honesty. Gotcha. I, I said the most persuasive argument. I mean, wins. yeah, oh, he did say it. <laughs> I missed the prompt. You gotta listen to the instructions, Mike. Well, there's lots of opportunity for everybody to turn it around. So I think we should keep going. We promised spoilers and uh, and it's time to do that. So uh, let's just give everybody like the, a three second pause where we're going to do the worst thing for a podcast, which is be quiet for like a second to signal the transition into spoiler territory. And we'll all pat our heads and rub our bellies for three seconds. And then we'll come back and start spoiling things. All right, that's it. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> did you actually pat your head and rub your belly? I did. You said to follow instructions. I, I, I did too. That's true. I didn't do it though. <laughs> oh, oh, you didn't take oh, your own no. advice. Fake, Listeners, fake uh, did you pat your head and, and rub your stomachs? You can let us know at dyingmessagepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Let's spoil a oh murder God, mystery. Yes. Okay. We'll get into the mechanics of each of the murders. We'll go through them all. But I want to start with the motive and the murderer. So to recap, there were three victims. The first was Ueda, who was the chauffeur of the second victim, Kikuoka, uh, a company CEO. The third victim was Shun Sasaki, a medical student living at the house. He was attending to the owner of the house, Kozaburo Hamamoto. So we'll see that Sasaki's death was a ruse to catch the real murderer. Ueda's death was kind of incidental. Uh, we'll get to all of that. The murderer wanted to kill Kikuoka. That is the whole point of everything that happened. So here we go. Who who did it? Who wanted to kill Kikuoka and why? I mean, so it was Hamamoto. Everybody's favorite host. The owner of the house. Mysterious, who, suspicious guy. Who, okay. So I don't even know if I can fully explain why. Because <laughs> it was the longest, most ridiculously long-winded explanation of a reason to kill someone. I feel like if this... This reason story had been told in an anime, it would have been, like, tannish, black and white. There would have been flowing sakura blossom petals at some point. It also is, like, a whole episode on its own yeah, it's of like, a flashback episode. Yeah. It's very melancholic, yeah. yeah. I was, at, at the at the point of the discussion of the military connection reveal, I was skimming and I was like, I'm just going to need somebody to explain this whole <laughs> war story to me, because... She got like weirdly sad at one point about like children starving in the streets. And I was like, what? No, I'm not here for this. Yeah. Long story short, 
Hamamoto had a had a close friend who was in is it the Vietnam War? Oh, it was I World assumed War it was II. World War II because they're talking about the burnout. That's that makes that makes way more sense. Okay. <laughs> so, but are they old enough for that? Yeah, it's nineteen eighty yeah. something. Nineteen eighty-three. And they're in their sixties. Yeah. yeah, right. So, so it's I World guess. War II. Okay, okay. So he had a friend who was in the war, and there's the, most of it is not important, but his friend had a commander who was this horrible guy who murdered people and did lots of terrible things. That guy turned out to be Kikuoka. And he made a promise to his friend to avenge him and all the terrible things that were done to him and the people around him by killing Kikuoka. Yeah, in terms of, like, motive, this was a little infuriating to me because it was just, like, an old-fashioned, like, you don't know what the motive is because we did a a throw-mama-from-the-train-crisscross murder and didn't tell you about the other half of it. Uh, That doesn't mean anything to me. Is that what throw-mama-from-the-train is? Yeah, the the whole line from that movie is crisscross. I'll kill your person and you kill my person. And then neither of us has a motive for the murder of the person we murdered. Oh, that's right. His friend wow. murdered someone for, or he used the friend's gun. He had one bullet. Yeah, he was going to marry his wife, uh, but then this like Yakuza guy came in and was going to steal him out from her out from under him and take away like his future. So his friend offered, with his one bullet left, because it's very hard to get mm-hmm. bullets and guns, uh, to kill his person. As long as Kozaboro then went and killed Kikuoka in, in the future for that for his yeah. friend. I think we can all agree it's very convoluted. Yes. Yes. It was. I particularly was intrigued, and by intrigued, I mean completely confused about the the doctor example of, like, wouldn't you want a doctor, if you had stomach cancer, to just tell you you had an ulcer so that you could die in peace thinking you never got cancer? And I was like, wait a second. We watched a whole movie about that way of thinking, actually. Yeah, the movie The Farewell, uh, which came out last year and was yes. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Okay, great film. Yes, about- I agree. China, so, you know, different culture, but there's some overlap where they will regularly, the the doctor will tell the family that an aging uh, parent is ill, but not tell the aging parent as, and it's believed to be a kindness, because why should they worry about their cancer for a year or two? What shouldn't they just enjoy the time they have left? Oof. But that as a metaphor for this is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, for sure. it doesn't really work. Well, because they're like, you didn't actually need to do the murder because he died believing you were going to do the murder. That's that's the connection. Right. <laughs> also feel like that line of thinking is flawed as someone who gets a headache and thinks I have a brain tumor. Uh-huh. I feel like if I had cancer, I'd probably notice. Probably. I would hope. It mostly works with uh, elderly people who have a lot of things going on anyway. So then they might have something slip by. Right. Whose bodies are so decrepit yeah. that you yeah. can't that's tell. That's not what I'm saying. It's <laughs> like <laughs> so they might not question yeah. a diagnosis for a year if it well, maps to fair. what they're experiencing yeah. anyway. Tune into our philosophy and ethics spin-off <laughs> podcast. Why <laughs> uh, if you had a podcast that was just a spin-off? <laughs> like each next episode was a spin-off of the last episode. Oh, well, there is Andy Daly's pilot po- podcast pilot project where each episode is a pilot for a new podcast with a with a made up character hosting it. Ooh. Oh, there's also this this may be intriguing to um, the, you, you, my friends that are recording this, but also you, the listener. Uh, Rose Eveleth uh, does a weekly newsletter that's like made up podcast ideas. And it's always like <laughs> it's a cross between criminal and planet money <laughs> and like and it'll always be like a real host and like a fake like kind of uh fictional host i think anyways it's hilarious if you're really into podcasts neat for the listeners uh 
none of these people paid us money to talk about their podcasts. <laughs> but they could. If they want to pay, pay us money for having talked about their podcasts, they are free to do so. Yeah. That is normally how sponsorship deals work. <laughs> then, then I can pay Michael less for this episode than I would pay him for his episodes where he's on full hosting duty. <laughs> but will you still feed him the same amount of Kit Kats and still spend the same amount of time with him? Yes, always. Great. I think we're ready to start talking about these murders. <laughs> <laughs> what, if, what if we just never talk about the murders? It's just an hour of us being on tangents. <laughs> no, we, we, we were talking about the murder. We were talking about the motive. That's, That's related. That's true. That's true. That's true. Okay. Murder oh, time. Murder number one was the killing of Ueda, the chauffeur, the driver. Mm-hmm. We'll go through some of the, the clues and the solutions to see what we think um, throughout the podcast as we go through all this stuff. We'll definitely be looking at like how much sense does this stuff make? Are the clues fair and scare? Is it is it guessable? Is it guessable? That's a big question. Fair here. and scare? Fair and scare. Ah, um, fair and scare. It's fair and scare. <laughs> I don't know. I won't correct myself. You got it. Fair and square. Um. I'm going to start by reading a passage from the portion at the end of the book where all of the murders are revealed. I'm sure we will touch a little bit more on how this comes to be. But they've confronted Havamoto about the murders. They've got him to spill his guts. And uh, here's uh, Kiyoshi, the detective, telling him about the murder of Ueda. So you decided to kill Ueda. You thought if you were going to kill him anyway, why not use his murder as a kind of foreshadowing of the carefully prepared murder of Kikuoka in a way that would cause so much confusion in the investigation? That's what the string tied to the handle of the knife was about, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, so let's start Let's start talking about this body. Why Why specifically was Ueda killed? Uh, there's a number of like overlapping reasons. The first of which is because Kozaboro's butler and... What's the word? Housekeeper. Housekeeper, yeah. His butler and Butler-ess. housekeeper essentially uh, hired Ueda to kill Kikuoka. And Kozaboro, after spending all these years planning the murder, thought it would be like dishonorable if anyone got, got yeah. to it before him. Well, we knew already that their, that Kikuoka was kind of, in some ways, responsible for their daughter's death. Right. Even if in like a, a roundabout way. Yeah, and as we're led to believe like later on... Uh, maybe they even wanted to spare their employer, like being guilty of these yeah. murders, so wanted to get to it before him at the same time. And then there's a lot of ways that he used this murder to kind of make the second murder more confusing. Right. Yeah. And there was also the element that apparently Ueda had his own vendetta against Kikuoka oh, right. for some slight to his mother. Oh, um, the this was another one of those like weird insults where you're like, is that really that mean? Is this, are you taking this too deep? The the phrase was like stubborn old bag of uh, it's like, okay, you're gonna kill over that man. Like, well, he was also a hired assassin, so yeah. it's like, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's oh, just yeah. why Maybe he didn't back down. Not the most anger stable person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. this ex military professional murderer. <laughs> there are. Maybe he's professional. I don't know about that. There are certainly some of these things that you will have to read the book to get the full story, because even our ability to summarize and explain them is uh, secondary <laughs> to that of the author and translator. So the, the first thing I want to talk about is the trick with the snow, mm-hmm. which I'm yeah. going to toot my own horn, even though I left my horn upstairs. 
and say this is the this is the one thing that I think I figured out. Like I I was pretty much clueless, and there was some stuff you you got Michael got something that I de- wasn't even close to, but I but in a weird way that I was also off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, the the question was how did someone get to the room? It only has a door to the outside, and there was snow with no tracks. Um, and the clues was the b- discarded body of the doll and these two stakes left stakes. in the ground. Mm-hmm. And I noticed from the diagram that if you go out the door to the salon, go from one stake to the other stake, and then walk over the doll, you would get there w- without leaving tracks in the snow. I thought maybe there was a string between the stakes, which doesn't really make sense because they're not attached so well. So I didn't, I didn't completely figure it out. Mm-hmm. In reality, it's that you can shake the snow off the roof and it falls in the path that the stakes... Right, they're like markers for the path that goes under the roof, which, (sighs) yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess because I was I got so fixated on the first murder being a practice murder for the second murder that I forgot to think about. Well, what if they were done differently? Yeah, because he straight up just went into his room and stabbed him, and then used this stuff to. Right, that's the thing that made the second murder so confusing. Right, murder one in the room, murder two not in the room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What did you all think about the snow? Was that a satisfying explanation? It was an unexpected explanation. It did not occur to me. I think the best I could come up with with the stakes is that they were some sort of stilts that someone had used. Ooh. Yeah. I for sure thought it was like about measuring the snow and its height, but then I didn't even remember to include that in any of my thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I felt it was satisfying and that was it was unexpected, but not so far out of left field that I didn't like it, if that makes sense. Are you alluding to something else, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my general feelings about this book, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it works. It works. Yeah. It works. And then, of course, we get the explanation about why Kumi saw what ended up being Golem's head floating in front yeah. of her window, <laughs> which was mm. sort of like a, uh, I'm up on the roof kicking snow over, and oops, uh-huh. uh, my daughter closed my bridge. I'm stuck. Got a... Tick myself. Right. This is some of the details about the structure of the house and the weird bridge to his room. He right. gets stuck up on the roof without a way in, so he uses yeah. the doll head and scaring Kumi. Which he just so happens to be carrying because he doesn't want to mess that up. He'll stomp on the rest of the doll, but he'll right. carry the head with him. But the head is fine, yeah. Um, to, get, to cause a commotion so he can sneak in through a window and lower the drawbridge as if he just came out of his room, which mm-hmm. is what you assume when you read the book. Right. Um, but I want to read something on page... Oh, okay. Not page 51. Let me find it. Hold on. I do have tabs. Sorry. I wrote got a lot room. of tabs. I have a lot of tabs. <laughs> How many windows do you have, though? Um, a bunch. Wow. Took, took me a second. Browser humor. I'm so disappointed, by the way, that, spoiler alert, the double-paned windows had nothing to do with any of this. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just because they were mentioned so heavy-handedly so many there's times. There's a bunch of stuff like that. Yep. Okay, I found the page. So when there's this commotion, everybody kind of appears one after the other. And this is what happens when uh, he appears. Eiko turned to see her father standing in the open doorway. Over his pajamas, he was wearing his usual jacket and trousers with the addition of a sweater under the jacket. It was cold out on the drawbridge. No, it wasn't that he put on a sweater because it was cold on the drawbridge. It was that he put on a sweater because he was outside murdering someone. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. the sweater was bloody and all this stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. I, I will say, when I had initially read that passage, I was like, man, he, he put on a lot of clothes just to, like, run for his screaming daughter. And I was like, ah, it's not really clear what he sleeps in, though. I have some very strange questions about clothing in this book. Uh, I'll hold on to some, some of that for later. Well, a passage like that, and I have some for later, are things on my second read-through, once I knew how everything was done, where I was like, 
Aha. All right. What can I find? Some of it I call clues and some of it I call foreshadowing. I also found it a little bit of a cop out that the cops were so bad that they decided not to go through Hamamoto's clothes. Right. Like, oh, they were so polite. They just decided not to dig through all my clothes. They didn't get to the bloody one at the bottom. They're pretty bad. So um, the other thing was the locked room wasn't super important because even earlier in the book, we had been told the solution to the locked room. Right. Sasaki said maybe you could do it this way with uh, a shot put, and that was how it was done. Uh-huh. That's it. So the last thing I think we need to talk about before we grade everybody is the condition of the body. Michael, why don't you talk about this because you have thoughts? Yeah, well, so I, w- I got weirdly halfway there. Yeah. Uh, maybe because yeah. I... I was looking for a dying message and, yeah. you know, uh, I know semaphore from puzzle solving and from being in a weird uh, childhood military group yeah. where I had to learn semaphore. So what, what condition was the body was in and why? Yeah. So he, his right arm was tied to the bed. Yeah. Uh, and his, his arms were both basically rigor mortis up in like a V shape. Yeah. And then his legs were twisted to the side with his uh, legs uh, at like, uh, was it 11 o'clock and like, was it like two o'clock? Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, but basically, uh, I had guessed that it was semaphore, that he made semaphore with his legs. That was an H or one of the two letters in Kohosaburo's name. I'd have to look up my theory. Uh, and the other were in the shape of his other initial, but then he tied it to the bed to like change the shape that yeah. his arms were in. Yeah. Uh, but that turned out that he just tied his arm to the bed completely arbitrarily. Like, he, it, it's literally like, I don't know why I tied his, his arm to the bed. Yeah. He was in a murderous fall. I didn't, I don't know, it yeah. really doesn't matter or make sense. Yeah, that's uh, one of the worst things. So, but then I was kind of right because he did give Hama in semaphore, just Japanese semaphore, which yes. because <laughs> I was able to correlate the first part of my theory uh, with English semaphore, I never went on to see that it was an exact match in Japanese semaphore. <laughs> I was super impressed when you brought up semaphore. Yeah. But I was still wrong. <laughs> but but more right than not. Mm. I think there is a reference. Someone says something about a dancing corpse, which is a reference to the Sherlock Holmes story about the dancing men, mm-hmm. which is a semaphore code involved mm-hmm. i forget if that comes before or after we learn the solution though yeah i don't know it was just the way his specifically with his arms up in the v that's what got my brain thinking like that because the first thing i think is like yeah. that's a hand signal so it's semaphore yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. so i think we've answered all of our questions the questions i asked you all was who killed ueda how did they do it why did they do it and what is the significance of the incident that occurred the previous night outside kumi's window mm-hmm. so i'm going to open back up the dying message logbook Let's see what um, guesses you get, and let's award points for our first deductive challenge, which is, there's no murder like snow murder. All right, Neil, you went first. Um, You suggested that Kumi did the murder with knife stuff because she was fighting for the attention of Kikuoka. She screamed and created the incident that night as cover, so nobody knew exactly what went on. I awarded you, I'm going to say, one and a half points for this. Because it was interesting and logically consistent, and uh, the idea of why she used the incident was intriguing to me. Michael, you said it was Hamamoto. Um, you went into a great big deal about how he built the house with a mechanism such that the roof could open and things could move, and the doll got tied to a court, <laughs> used as a counterweight, and dangled in front of the window and then dropped over to the side. Um, 
you he you said he did it because he wanted to test the mechanism, get police in the house, and clear maybe clear the snow off the mechanism, and that the incident outside the window was explained by the mechanism. So here's the what I gave you points for. You get one point because you got the murderer right. Mm-hmm. You I gave you one point because you said something about how the elaborate house was constructed for the purpose of murder, which is the whole point of murder two. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave you another point because the. I liked the idea of the doll on the cord being used as a counterweight and that flinging it. Like, that was a very clever way to tie everything together and explains why it's out in the snow. Um, so I gave you a point for that. And then I gave you two points for semaphore for a total of five points. Yeah. Comeback nice. time. <laughs> Kate, um, you said it was Hamamoto, that he was doing it for shits and giggles because he likes being weird to people. And um, <laughs> that he used his mechanical dolls you said the doll incident was Aiko terrorizing Kumi, that it wasn't related, which was interesting, and that Aiko flung the golem out into the snow. I gave you two points here, one point for getting the murderer right, and another point because you were the kind of the closest... It wasn't Aiko who threw the doll into the snow, but you suggested that she just kind of threw the doll off the roof, which is pretty close to what actually happened to the head. So I gave you a point for that, uh, giving you a total of two points. Okay, I'll take it, I'll take it. After our first murder challenge, Neil has 21 and a half points, Michael has 22 and a half, and Kate is in the lead with 24 and a half points. Ha <laughs> ha! As I predicted. <laughs> All right, let's break things up with another kind of game. Ooh. This is in honor of Ueda's semaphorical final act. Our next game is Driving Message. Ueda was Kikuoka's driver and he left behind a dying message, so you could call it a driving message. This is a quick fire elimination challenge. I want you to use soundalikes or rhymes for the words dying or message to create your own spin on a dying message. What is it called and who is murdered? You'll be eliminated if you take too long or I reject the answer. We'll go through like over and over again until everyone's eliminated. So an example is you might say, the example I gave you, you might say a chauffeur leaves behind a driving message. You know, a blank leaves behind a blank. Um, and when you can't come up with them, you are out. Um, so I think we'll go Neil, Kate, Michael, and Neil, Kate, Michael, Neil, Kate, Michael. Ready, get set, go. A particularly luxurious flight attendant might leave a flying massage. Am I doing this right? Yes. Am I doing this right? You don't have to change both words. Okay. A long-suffering housewife leaves behind a sighing message. A person who works at a textile factory who's in charge of coloring fabric leaves behind a dying message. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) Um, An auctioneer may leave a buying message. Uh, SpongeBob SquarePants cook at the Krusty Krab leaves a frying message. Someone who's really into knots leaves a tying message. This is so fun. Uh, um, A person who makes beef jerky leaves a drying message uh the the fox from the woods leaves a slying message a real estate agent leaves a buying message oh we already had buying message for an auctioneer oh no michael you are out you're out all right neil it's back to you a chicken part cutter leaves a thighing message the person who doesn't know how to not hit a response to everybody at work leaves a replying message. <laughs> a baseball player who enjoys getting other players off base and scoring points leaves an 
RBIing message. Uh, the lawyer who wants to really make their point leaves a be lying message. Oh, they be lying. They be lie the point. No, be lie. They be lie the point. Yeah. Yeah. Is that is that does that work, Michael? Why are you asking me? You're the judge. I am the judge. All right, I'll take it, Neil. A person who uses chemicals to make pretzels leaves a lying message. Uh, the small child whose ice cream I smashed on the floor leaves a crying message. Rude. Somebody who wins a baking competition at a county fair leaves a pieing message. Uh, All right, you're out. Uh, <laughs> That's it. I had more. <laughs> I had so many more. Well, I'm tapped out. Neil, like, you know, send, you can send them to me anytime or just like send me an email with hundreds of them. Maybe I'll read them on the podcast in the future. <laughs> What's your email address for that? DyingMessagePodcast at gmail.com. Ah, thank you. <laughs> um, all right, so that is three points to Neil, two points to Kate, and one point Ooh. to Michael. Ah. Thank you for ah. playing, everyone. This brings us to our second murder. This is the fun part. Or, you know, one of the fun parts. Boy, is it ever. <laughs> Yikes. So let's start with the good part. I'm going to go right to what will be a fun passage in the book to read on page 316. This is the part that I think, you know, is the throw the book out the window part, 317. So Hamamoto did this murder, but the part of the problem is that he was in his room in his tower with the detective at the time this happened. So here's when they start to explain it. The murder of Kikuoka, but that happened while I was with Mr. Hamamoto. We were definitely together at the time of death, drinking Louis XIII cognac. How on earth did he used an icicle? When I first arrived at this mansion and looked up at the tower, it was as I had expected. There were so many huge icicles. An icicle? The detectives looked flabbergasted. But it was a knife, said Okuma. It was definitely a knife that killed Kikuoka. A knife inside an icicle. He hung a knife from a string under the eaves of it, the tower roof, and it created an icicle with a knife at the tip. Isn't that right, Mr. Hamamoto? You got it. Nicely done. This far north, the icicles are gigantic. Some of them grow longer than a meter. When I made my knifesicles, I dipped the tips in warm water to expose the blade of the knife. Then I kept them in the freezer. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, knifesicle was my absolute favorite part of this book. I actually put that in my notes. Like, I stopped reading and I was just typing some notes and I typed knifesicle and then he said knifesicle, but he spelled it differently than me. But I, I was excited about that. <laughs> yeah. At the very least. I had a similar experience. Also, um,. That's a kudos to the translator. We can we could, we don't know whether or not there was a pun in the original Japanese, but I guess he was talking kind of playfully, so she wrote a pun in. So uh, I would like to note uh, on a copy editing uh, tip uh, that on one page it's it's knifesicle, that's a uh, hyphenated word, and two pages later it is all one word, no hyphen. Gasp! It's because it became like so established as a thing in those two pages. That it no yeah, longer apparently. needs to be <laughs> Okay. Language All transforms, right. Neil. Yeah. <laughs> Very rapidly. Catch us on our other podcast. We haven't even gotten to the best part of all of this, though. Okay, what's the best part, Kate? That he slid <laughs> the knife, yeah. sickle, yeah. through the house yeah, all on the way through a predetermined, carefully calculated path from the tower to the room where Kikuoko was sleeping. 
in the position he knew he'd be sleeping in. Well, sort of. There are so many, like, so many details about this. Yeah. Oh my god. So first of all, something I didn't notice even the first time I read it. There's a diagram of his tower, mm-hmm. and the whole reason we're given that diagram is so that you can see that the kitchen window is right above the stairs outside. So while he was in the kitchen with, uh, and the other guy was in the other room, he took the knifesicle out of the freezer and dropped it right out that window, and that was enough to kill a guy who was all the way on the other end of the house. It's the most mouse trappy. Like unreal, it's somehow more yes. elaborate than what I came up with, which was a house that opens up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then throughout the house, there's all these ventilation holes, and I think the icicle the icicle passes through two of the ventilation holes, right? And um, the, somehow, oh, a window that's always kept cracked open. It also passes through these gaps between the landings and the wall right. twice. It's, it's like a rail, and across oh, a yeah. series of. Tengu mask noses. Right. The nose um, maze, yeah. This is what I'm saying, where I'm like, if you haven't read this book, but you're listening to this podcast at this point, now I think is the point where you decide, (laughs) man, this is too bonkers, and I have refused to to actually put these words in my eyes. Uh, Or you say, I have to figure out how the hell the author got to this point in text. Yeah, but it turns out the whole reason the Crooked House and the Crooked House murder mystery was crooked was so that an icicle could go in the area between the stairs and the wall because it's actually slanted, right? And the wall isn't perfect. It's like a it's like a rail. It keeps the it keeps yeah. the icicle exactly where it's supposed to be. Yeah, um, I loved that part. There's something weirdly elaborate. So he he chose the room to sleep the guy in, which is all the way at the bottom. It's the only room where this works, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's the hottest room because that makes the icicle melt. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bed yeah. doesn't move, so it and it's very narrow, which forces a person to sleep directly under the opening. Yeah. God. And he even, he even went so far as to give him a thin electrical blanket instead of a thick comforter, so he, it, it would stab right him through. real good. That's right. <laughs> I want to see the movie where we get to see the, <laughs> we get to see the reenactment and Get the CG icicle slithering through the whole oh, house. Oh, no, they have to build it. They have to do it for real or I won't like the movie. <laughs> I don't think this would work. We need the Mythbusters to build this house. Yeah. I'm almost upset that nobody pointed it out in the book unless I missed it. Yeah. But this gives poignant meaning to the mansion being called the Ice Flow Mansion because it's literally built uh, so that ice can uh, slide uh, through it. Not, not. Oh my god, I just, I didn't even realize that. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's, there's just so much to like about this. Like, you can't see it coming. Uh, you can't. Is it, like, that's one of my questions, too. Is it possible? Like, I, I didn't want to say outright when I asked you all to do this, I don't think it's possible for any of you to guess the right answer, but I'm, I was like 99% sure none of you were going to guess yeah. this. No, uh, not even close. Can no. If we gave this to enough people and asked them all to figure it out, will someone figure it out? Is it possible? If somebody setting out to figure it out and like gets on a mechanical kick like I did, but then actually bothers to think about it, really looks at that diagram, they'd at least see the connection maybe, I think, and at least maybe come up with a path. But I don't know that they didn't emphasize the icicle at any point. They weren't like... Oh, and look, there's all these icicles here at this house. Unless I missed it, Noah's On page 47. There is a point where they talk about the yeah, icicles. Right. On, on page 47, <laughs> uh, before the murder takes place, they go up to look at the flowers below. Mm-hmm. Um, 
this is this is one of the things, of course, that I noted the second time when I was looking for mentions of icicles. From the eaves above the walkway hung several giant icicles, looking disturbingly like vicious fangs in the midst of the furiously whirling powder snow. I believe that is the only mention of that the icicles. That is foreshadowing. Okay. Yeah. I right. noticed that point about the icicles, but then forgot about it later because of that clip in the office where Dwight gets mad at Michael because he likes to stand directly underneath icicles <laughs> to look at them. And there is a like perennial riddle about someone who's murdered and there's no murder weapon because it was an icicle that melted. So it's the weird thing of like, but there was a knife in him. So why would we consider an icicle when we know what it was? And this is why there's a rope. uh, Because he made, he hung the knife to make a knifesicle. That's why the string was attached. And the whole reason he tied a rope to the first knife was just to create correlation. It wasn't important at all. Yeah. I did also appreciate the tie in with why he spilled the vase of flowers to cover any extra water that had gotten on the body. Yeah, uh, I miss that. That's lo- that's lovely. Michael had said something about the vase, which I'll say when we do the guesses. And as he was reading the book earlier today, he turned to me and he's like, they haven't said it yet, but I know he broke the vase to cover up the water. <laughs> <laughs> this was after he knew about the knifesicle. <laughs> yes, between the knifesicle and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like... I also just want to add in that I particularly was tickled on page 322 when to like finish this gigantic like luge path that the icicle (laughs) had to take they the mention of um he says outside the ventilation hole in room three there's a decorative wall carving part of which juts out at just the right level to support the icicle (laughs) on this point this is in parentheses and italics the author feels he may have been unfair to the reader. However, he believes that it will not cause any lasting damage to those of the vivid imagination. Like, the author realizes how far-fetched and ridiculous yeah. this is. <laughs> and Neil, you talked about, like, holding the author accountable for this work. Not in those exact words, but when he, like, sets out a challenge to the reader on a page and writes notes like that, it's like, how can you not be like, yeah. uh, excuse me? Yeah. We're, yeah, you, you, we're you, just humans. You, you, yeah, you know, you know what you did. Nobody, nobody forced you to do this. I have to imagine the author was like, "Well, if I mention this carving, may, people might think of the thing." So, mm-hmm. I want to have all the information there, but also I don't want to yeah. point at it and say, "Hey, look yeah. at this." I mean, this almost has the feel of like, like one of those improv games where it's like, "Here, you have this, and you have this. Make them fit together in a way that makes sense." Like the author had the diagram of the house. Uh-huh. And a few other details, and had to come up with the most wacky, ridiculous method yeah. to murder someone yeah. within a house that looked like I, this. Yeah, I also thought about like kind of the which was the origin point for this book. Was it mm, all right? What if there's a really weird house, and you think have this weird passageway and icicles, or was it like I'm gonna write a book, and at some point I'll figure out what the hell I'm talking about? <laughs> I think he had the idea for a knifesicle first, and I think everything else followed. Yeah. I, mean, that makes sense. I think he structured yeah. the house the same way that the fictional person in the book structured the house mm-hmm. to allow this murder to take place. Yeah, when you when you finally get this and you read everything, there's just so many of those details that line up and like it's not something you ever guess, but but like Michael with the vase, you start to go, oh, so that's why this was this way and this was that uh-huh, way. Uh-huh. And I think that's what made it satisfying for me, even though it is a little bit of a like, this isn't fair. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, one would yeah. say the book isn't written so that you can guess, even though they that's... particularly put a thing there to make be like, can you do it? That's a great way to put it. Yeah. 
But I also love a, a purpose-built murder house. <laughs> he built this house only to murder. He built this house ten years ago to murder Kikuoka, mm-hmm. and that was the only yeah. reason. On he, page, took, he took the long way around. On page two seventy-five, Kiyoshi, the detective, tells him, uh, "A man of your intelligence doesn't build a house on the farthest tip of the northernmost island of Japan for no reason whatsoever." Mm-hmm. Like the location of the house was important because he needed the weather. He had to do the murder this night because the blizzard covered up the sound because people did hear the icicle moving, but mm-hmm. but there was also the blizzard noise. Yeah, and it had to be the, the 80s because climate change hadn't uh, accelerated <laughs> quite as much as it has now. I just, wanna, yeah. I just want to be the person who was like the guest at this mansion during the murder who like didn't stay in the salon and was just walking back to my bedroom when the icicle slid by on the stairs and just <laughs> yeah. look at it and be like, what the fuck was that? And he says it's not a sure thing. Like, what if someone's sitting on the stairs and it pokes you in the butt? <laughs> but he, he also encouraged everyone to stay in the salon. He kind of had a sense of where everybody was and mm-hmm, who was mm-hmm. asleep and whatnot. He even, I think, like, Eiko or the staff poked their head up and he kind of asked them, oh, is everybody still in the salon? Yeah. And we find right out before he did the murder. Yeah, we find out that the whole reason he was like, oh my god, guy who's not that great at billiards you should play billiards with my daughter and this guy all night specifically so they would have uh yeah they would have uh an alibi for the murder because he didn't want them to accidentally get accused yeah um i want to come back to that i want to come back to is the way he's portrayed as a murderer and kind of like not as such a bad guy Hmm. so let's let's Mm -hmm. ask questions about that but i think we're ready to score our second deductive challenge all locked up and nowhere to flow michael you guessed first um, I gave you three points for this. So you had uh, c- correctly identified the murderer and you had uh, clued on to the vase that he was concealing something that was left in the room. You had the mechanism of, of Golem and, and the house opening. So that wasn't quite on point. Um, and nobody could guess the motive because it wasn't revealed until the end of the book. Right. Uh, Kate, I also gave you three points because you got the murderer right. You were pretty onto that. And then I failed to ask you what was the noise. And so I can, I have to give you some points because I didn't give you an opportunity to lock in a guess on that. So. Well, I definitely would have said an icicle sliding. Yeah, down exactly. Hallway, we so. can... <laughs> I think that's only fair. We can Obviously. only assume that's what you were going to say. Oh, that's the sound of the icicle sliding down the staircase. Yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> um, so you both get th- uh, three points for that. Neil, you get two points. One point because um, you you got the wrong person. You said it was Hayakawa who who had a, a clear motive. But in reference to him, you said he knows the house inside and out. So he was able to jerry-rig something about mm-hmm. the house that no one else could. Ooh. And that's kind of what kind of true. Uh, uh, Kamamoto did. He knew the house in a way inside and out that allowed him to do this elaborate motive. And then I gave you one point um, for saying that the string caused noise and, and calling that string theory because that was funny. So, so you get Can I also points. just add that Hayakawa was involved in testing the icicle? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I feel like that was a legit guess. So great job, everyone. I mean, with all of this stuff, like even when you weren't right, you definitely caught on to a bunch of these clues and connected them in, in interesting ways. Um, so I don't think you'll go back to the first episode and and feel like you were a big dum dum or anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we've got to do our next challenge. Okay, this will be a quick one. All right, we're gonna get creative and uh, design our own implements of death in this next game: a knifesicle built for two. <laughs> I, I, Noah, I don't understand how game pun based <laughs> game naming is not more a part of your life. <laughs> 
let me tell you how to play a knife sickle build for two. Okay. So uh, the, the bizarre and improbable murder weapon was created by combining two other possible weapons, a knife and an icicle. I would like each of you to create a new hybrid murder weapon by combining two objects. What is it called? And how could it be used to create a fiendishly improbable murder? Most enjoyable to hear about creation wins the points. We're going to go Kate and then Neil and then Michael. Oh boy. Oh boy. I'm going to go ahead and uh, create a, a jello grenade. Because those are the first two things that came to my brain. Yes. And I feel like I was talking about the office. So stuff in jello is on my brain. Um, how it would work is, um, why well, I, I don't have a strong understanding of how grenades work, but this is how, this is how mine would work. It would be in the jello. The grenade is in the jello. The pin has been pulled. And then as soon as the jello jiggles, it explodes such as with footfall, someone walking by. So I'd trick them into walking by my jello grenade. So you theorize that you can take a regular hand grenade, remove the pin, bake it into jello, and create a proximity mine. Yes. That I know I'm aware that this probably doesn't follow the laws of grenades and or physics, but that is I feel like that's as legit as a as a yeah. icicle knife. Well there's no Mythbusters here to debunk it. Who's up next? Aren't you in charge? Yes. <laughs> Neil's up next. What I've got here is a, um, I don't know the Japanese word for it, but it's a, it's a Ninja Star DVD. A Shuriken DVD? A Shuriken, thank you. Uh, yeah, so it, it plays in a DVD player, uh, but is in the shape of, uh, you know, a throwing star. And uh, so you can you can like conceal it in a DVD case and also watch a movie, uh, but when the time comes, you hit eject on that DVD player and chuck it. Oh, so you also it also requires a DVD player that's going to eject it with sufficient force to to kill to uh, cause a murder. No, sorry, you've misunderstood. The DVD player isn't involved <laughs> in the propulsion at all. You're still using your hand. Okay, love it. Uh, that would be that would be three objects, and that's just silly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Michael, what have you got? Okay, the best I was able to come up with was the Poison Barb uh, boxing glove. Now, this is only helpful if you happen to want to kill a boxer. Uh, so <laughs> you swap out uh, the box, the boxing mitts of the boxer you do not wish to murder with boxing gloves that have poison bar- micro poison barbs built into the ends so that when they're done boxing, he is the, the, the boxer that you want to kill has been punched repeatedly with these little poison barbs, doesn't realize it the whole time, ends up dying, and even if they trace it back, uh, then the person who punched them gets accused, uh, and you go off scot-free. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like those were all plausible solutions to other books written by Soji Shimada. The one that I like the best is the jello grenade it makes the least ah. amount of sense <laughs> and is therefore the most whimsical ah. i should have said whimsy points go for whimsy ah, shoot you should have i should oh, have yeah. <laughs> I um and likewise neil then gets two and michael Can gets I go back one. in time and use my rubber anvil <laughs> <laughs> rubber anvil i love it all right i'll give I'll, I'll i'll give michael one and a half instead of one because i didn't specify whimsy so uh michael gets one and a half neil gets two kate gets three Woo-woo. 
This brings us to our final murder we got to check up on. Uh, the day after Shun Sasaki has a long conversation with the detective, he disappears, but all is not as it seems. Pretty basically, he didn't die. Yeah. Yeah. And Michael, you were closest to this. Yeah, that was impressive to me. Yeah, it was all a ruse. It wasn't to like they were testing the the murder like method, you said, like I yeah. thought. It was literally just just to put Kozaburo uh, off his guard or to get him freaking out. And there was one more point to it, which was that they they needed Sasaki to do a couple things because there's this very elaborate way that they kind of entrap Hamamoto into his confession. So and there's two things they need. First is they need someone who can who he sets Eiko's bed on fire um, and he's just kind of mysteriously going around the house dressed up as Golem. <laughs> um, <laughs> So they need someone who can do that. And second, uh, they sent him to Kyoto to pick up a recreation of the golem mask that they use for this trick. Right. And they got pictures or whatever of the mat of golem's head. Yeah. When uh, Mitarai or Kiyoshi uh, took it to forensics. Yeah. And, and yeah. basically yeah. had his artist friend recreate it. Yeah. What's funny here is that the, it was legitimately a locked room because he staged the attack against himself. The right. room was genuinely locked uh -huh. with no way inside. So nobody nobody actually got in. Yeah. And let, let's touch on that, that, that moment when Kiyoshi Mitarai confronts Hamamoto. Mm -hmm. He manufactures a set of circumstances which leaves Eiko sleeping in the bed where Kikooka was killed. Mm -hmm. We know if you slide a knifesicle from the top it will yeah. kill her in that spot only um and there's because sasaki was killed and the threatening note was left it leaves the impression that eiko might be targeted right mm -hmm. this leads hamamoto to go and disable the plan we had mentioned there were tengu masks in that one room which were on the wall and created a path for the icicles so he goes right there to take them off the wall mm -hmm. and when he does so he doesn't notice that the golem doll in the room is actually Kiyoshi Mitarai disguised himself entirely as the golem yeah. doll. Yeah, the, the whole reason he went through that whole dumb elaborate bit where he had them put clothes yeah. on golem mm -hmm. so that you could later just wear those clothes and a golem mask. Right, the detective talked about how the golem like needs clothes and he's a real person and he talked about how he walks around and actually it was all for this purpose. Mm -hmm. Yep. Was, it a, was that a good catch-a-murderer plan? I, it's very weird. I mean, like... The, they play it up as like he he's this weird person, so he comes up with these weird schemes, and it's kind of fun. But I get I get at least where they're coming from. Like in abs in absence of the murderer making a mistake and leaving some damning evidence, you yeah. have to trick him into really, feeling like he has to confess. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a lot of machinery. Yeah, much like everything else that happened in this book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of spectacle. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed the moment when the doll started to move, mm -hmm. and I realized it was a person. This detective also wasn't in a tremendous amount of the book, and I, I guess this is his, like, this is the writer's, like, ongoing detective character, so he has to give him a moment to shine somehow. It's the second book featuring this character. I looked at the other one, which I have upstairs but haven't read yet, the, the one that came first, The Tokyo Murders, I mm -hmm. believe it's called. And yeah, that is narrated by his Watson from the start of the book, and they, they seem to be important throughout mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i did appreciate that his eccentric personality and the whole mr banana like i can't bother to remember anybody's real name so i just pick yeah. a name and call you it like, <laughs> yeah 
it's the like putting off an air of he's kind of confused and, and acting randomly so that nobody knows what he's really doing. And I think that's Michael, probably what you caught on to with your answer. So this is our third deductive challenge, Dr. Dr. Goose. Okay. Kate, I gave you one point for sticking to your guns. You said uh, that Kozaburo was the murderer again because he she wanted to get Sasaki out of the way of his daughter to, so that he could marry the other love interest. And yeah, so I give you one point for that. Neil, I give you one point for creativity for your answer. You leaned into the mystical potential and suggested Golem mm. could be the killer. Someone has to go for it. <laughs> right. Otherwise, <laughs> what's the point? And so I, I approve of you doing that. There was also a detail about one of the little dolls writing a note. And so Golem writing a note, like, mm-hmm. th- there's a different book with that ending. <laughs> Michael, you get three points for this. I gave you two points for guessing that Kiyoshi and Sasaki were kind of working together. You threw in Togai, who wasn't involved, whatever. Um, And you were kind of on point that the note was pressuring Kozaburo into panicking or confessing. You were wrong about its part in that plan, but you you got that. So you get three points and the other two get one. All righty. We are at our final challenge, which will determine our winner today. It's the most open-ended and subjective game yet. It's Dying Message Challenge, the competitive book club. I've prepared some discussion topics and encourage you all to bring your own thoughts. We're going to have a competitive book club and just talk about the books, make jokes about it, things we haven't covered. Um, I have a notepad. I've written your names down, and I will give you points throughout when I feel like you deserve one for being uh, interesting or pithy or whatever. Uh, and at the end of the time limit, I'll count up those tallies and give those points to everybody and see you, and that'll determine who wins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I may or may not say out loud when I'm giving people points, um, just depending on what is going on. So, uh, everybody ready to start this competitive book club? Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to start right in with with my heavy theory bit, which is I found this doctoral dissertation about Japanese mystery novels. I sent sent it to Neil um, called Culture and Authenticity, the Discursive Space of Japanese Detective Fiction and the Formation of the National Imaginary, which is someone wrote for their Ph.D. in 2007, Satomi Saito at the University of Iowa. And there's lots of interesting stuff in there about the detective genre over the years and all the things and, and whatnot. Soji Shimada comes up a lot because of how he started this genre. And um, one thing that he did was he re-promoted something that Edegawa Rampo, who was writing in the 40s, had said, which is that the three fundamental elements for detective fiction are mystery in the beginning, suspense in the middle, and a surprise ending. So my question is, does this book follow that pattern? I mean, it's. I think all of us feel like the ending was a bit of a surprise, <laughs> even though we were hunting and pecking for it. So I, I definitely feel like it meets that. Um, did I feel suspense in the middle? Um, maybe some. I don't know if I felt particularly suspenseful. I felt like, was there suspense? What do you guys feel about that? I would agree that the ending was surprising. I did not feel suspense because, like I said, I was not particular like the characters didn't really develop i wasn't really a fan of any of the characters i wasn't rooting for anyone um and i knew there were going to be three murders so the whole time like after the first one i was like all right where's the second one let's see some blood um i wasn't that zesty about it i think what also killed a little bit of the suspense for me was the meandering way they just were like living in the house like a bunch of guests and cops were just living in the house for a bunch of days and talking about how cold and sad and weird it was and i think Uh, which brings me to a point i raised earlier which is 
uh, what I call the Gilligan's Island problem of how much did they pack for this trip, <laughs> clothing-wise? <laughs> Presumably one change of clothes because they thought they'd be there at night, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, I don't know. I've been yeah. in that, that situation before and ended up feeling very weird about myself, like, spiritually. Uh, that's a whole... That's a podcast for another time. This weirdly reminded me, now that you mentioned that, of a time that uh, I got snowed in at an anime convention. And we were just... <laughs> like, the hotel gave us uh, our rooms for, like, a super reduced rate and probably free to people who said they couldn't afford it. And then, like, the convention sort of, like, gathered into this weird, sad room where we all just kind of sat there and it was cold outside and snowy. And it, it gave me that kind of energy. So <laughs> it, it was... Yeah. Yeah. Not they, suspenseful. They were trying to like have nice meals and play piano and billiards, but it's like, but nobody really wanted to be there. And let's let's be honest, if this was like 2020, they'd all just be scrolling their phones the whole time. This is true. <laughs> yes. yep. I was reminded a lot of the first detective novel that ever blew my mind, which was Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. Mm-hmm. Um also about a group of people stuck in a house on an island but yeah i don't know i found the ending to that one a little bit more satisfactory yeah well there's there's something about how outlandish the solution is which makes it so interesting and captivating Mm -hmm. but does cheapen like the ability of anybody to ever guess it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i think that's the thing that so i would say by and large yes this meets those three criteria um, however, the surprise, uh, the surprise ending is so outlandish that I feel cheated, for, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. yeah. out of it. It yeah. felt almost like it would have been better as a short riddle versus mm-hmm. an entire story. Yeah. Um, now that you mentioned short riddles, Kate, and since you were talking about Agatha Christie before, I was, I was wondering about that one riddle uh, or problem that Kosaboro posed early on in the novel where he was talking about his friend who worked at a, a rail company and uh-huh. was talking about how he ran the train to keep the train tracks clear. I thought that was going to be more relevant. No. I don't know if it was mm. supposed to like make you think about the footprints. It was setting them up to go to the tower so he could show them the... All it really made me think about was the Orient Express, yeah. uh, where which was specifically about a train that got stuck in the snow. So yeah. I don't know if that was like an intentional reference. Or you mentioned Orient Express. I want to go directly to the, uh, another quote from the, the dissertation, and I'll stop quoting academic writing, I promise. Okay. Um, this is just kind of talking about these genres in general. The the He writes, In pure puzzle stories, subordinate elements to the puzzle tend to be marginalized for the economy of presenting an attractive puzzle. Even if the characters are described, it's not characterization of the characters, but instead characterization for the logic. Mm-hmm. And this is something, Kate, you were saying, like... Um, is a reason you might look for other books because the characters aren't as strong. But when I think of Agatha Christie, um, particularly Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, those both have big twist endings, and the twist is who the murderer is. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. So it ties into all the personality and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Here, it was the most obvious suspect, but... The most ridiculous re- like method. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what do we think about characterization? I mean, there's no question that I, I don't think I'm wrong and not agreeing with everyone else when I say none of these characters are likable. Like, I didn't like any of them. No. I disagree. No. Oh, yeah? Who did you like? Um, Like, Sasaki was fine. He was fine. Yeah. Like, But there wasn't anything but memorable They were all two-dimensional characters. Yeah. They weren't standouts. Right. Mm-hmm. No. Like, the most standout character, I guess, I guess they tried to give Kozaboro a little bit of that, like, 
personality with his little backstory but i was mostly like this just sounds like a rich guy who benefited off of murder who's trying to backspin and make himself feel like it was for the right reasons instead yeah. of the reasons where he benefited and became rich well he's probably the roundest character in this book other than maybe the detective and the way he's kind of presented at the end is something I, we've seen a lot in anime too where the murderers it's kind of like sympathetic right yeah i could yeah. see them all just standing out on this hill with this known murderer with the sun setting looking up at the reflection of the yeah. chrysanthemums on the leaning tower and just this like saxophone music you'd expect at the end of a detective conan episode playing that's what i pictured it's like they're trying to make him sympathetic i didn't buy it yeah can we yeah. talk about the chrysanthemum tower for a second <laughs> yeah we haven't addressed that. Yeah. we can't not talk about it that was the part of the book where i was like oh you gotta be shitting me <laughs> yeah yeah that the flower bed reflected on the tower to look like a wilted chrysanthemum because Kozaburo had decided he was going to kill Kikuoka well, and that he had to lean the tower slightly so that you could see it from the hill. How is what? a reader going to get what? that? Because a reader can't stand on the hill right. and look at the thing. Like exactly. I had a sense. I think I had a sense it was about the reflection in the tower, but I didn't have a tower to reflect it in. Right. It's like, I guess going yeah. back, if you look at this weird shape of the flower bed, yeah, maybe that is the shape it would have to be to reflect up onto a tower that's leaning above it. I don't know. I don't know how that physics works. And I have a pretty good sense of how light refracts. Yeah. I, I can't see that in my head. Yeah. Um, I'm going to open it up to just general thoughts and topics. What else did we need to say? Uh, anything? Get it off your chest. I appreciated some of the um, little asides from the author, like the piece in parentheses that I read earlier. Or there was another piece where um, I guess it's the narrator that's saying it, but... He says, I couldn't help but thinking that if Chief Inspector Ushikoshi had guessed the truth that night from the title of the tune, the outcome would have been so much less satisfying. Yeah, like, as he does the murder, he's playing like a symphony or a classical piece of music called Le Adieu. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm glad I didn't make the character know this earlier because it would have been not as good. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say just as a general, like I, I mentioned this before, but in general, the whole portrayal of women in this book, like... It's both problematic and also, like, points out its own problematic nature. Like, Eiko sucks. Selfish, rich girl. Yeah. Uh, what's her What's her face? I'm looking it up. Michio Kanai, the, like, mad wife. Yeah. Uh, terrible character. Kumi, terrible character. But at the same time, both Kumi and, uh, I just said her name, uh, Mrs. Kanai. Yeah. Uh, saw things that nobody believed them that absolutely happened. So hashtag believe women, right? Like, uh, uh, right. I don't know. It was a weird portrayal of like both putting down the women and also portraying how they should be paid attention to. I don't know. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Thank you all for participating in this competitive book club. Uh, and for those of you at home, please do send us your thoughts at diagmessagepodcast at gmail.com. There's so much detail in this book and so many odd things. If you're here joining us, either you read the book or haven't read the book, um, you know, send us messages about knifesicles. We mm -hmm. want to hear it. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you that at the end of the competitive book club, Kate has scored five more points. Michael has scored three more points. That's it. And Neil has scored two more points. <laughs> <laughs> I've never claimed to be non-arbitrary. <laughs> Which means that let's tally up the scores. Da, 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 da. It's automatic because it's a spreadsheet. So I can tell you that at the end of Dying Message Challenge, Murder in the Crooked House, 
in third place is Neil Barton yeah. with 31 yeah. and a half points. In second place is Michael with 34 points. I can do arithmetic in my yes. head. And in first place with 38 and a half points, <laughs> yeah. the first ever detective champion of Woo. Dying Message Challenge is Kate Esposito. Yeah. I'm going to have so much cred in my murder group. <laughs> uh, Kate. Uh, I will, as winner, give you the the uh, the benefit of doing being the first to do plugs. So, where can people find you? What else you got going on? What do you want to share with people? Um, they can follow Daddy Issues Improv on Instagram and Facebook. I think we're at Daddy Issues Improv Comedy. Um, we are having, I think, monthly shows. We have one this week, but y'all won't hear this before then. Um. So keep an eye out for those. I am working on getting my podcast back up and going because I hate editing. Um, but Blue Sky Edcast on Instagram or Blue Sky Ed on any podcast platform. Uh, yeah, those are my big plugs. Oh, you can also follow my cats on Instagram. You want to give us those? That might be a good idea. Um, <laughs> the handle for them, they are adorable. I highly recommend. Uh, is at Ruben Sandwich. R-O-O-B-E-N Sandwich. Great. Um, Neil, how about you? Where can people keep up with you? Oh, uh, people can follow me on Twitter at Neil P. Bardham. Um, I also send out a monthly-ish newsletter uh, via Tiny Letter. So tinyletter.com slash Neil P. Bardhan, uh, where you can hear about what I'm reading, what I'm eating, uh, what I'm deleting, and where I'm retreating. Uh, Who you're meeting? Things. Also, um, where we could be meeting. Yes, thank you for that. <laughs> um, I couldn't remember how I often phrase that so that it rhymes well. And I perform regularly with the N Crowd, so Philly N Crowd on most social media, uh, including Twitch, where we stream live shows. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I want to personally thank each of you. Uh, I don't know if anyone has ever asked more of their guests for a double podcast appearance. <laughs> so this is something I had a lot of fun with. I hope you all had fun too. Michael, thank you for doing this podcast with me. Kate, um, you're great. This wasn't true crime, but you did really well. And Neil, you're the best. You're the wild card. You did it. <laughs> uh, and you both were early guests on the podcast when there weren't many episodes of the show. So I'm appreciative for you all being on there and doing that as well. Uh, yeah, this was fun. This was a nice little setup. And I I think I do have to <laughs> take stock of my life now uh, and think about, A, why I don't live in a crooked house. But B, uh, how, much, how much homework is reasonable for me to expect myself to do uh, <laughs> on the podcast. Because uh, I think this was, this was on the upper... Um, upper limit of things that's helpful feedback too and i mean it is a question of whether we'll ever do this again which brings me to my point of what i want to say to our listeners which is we are so glad to have you listening to this podcast whether or not you read the book um unlike our guests that isn't a requirement for you but we're glad you listened um because it's a bit unusual compared to what we do and it's more work for us all four of us to make then a regular episode of the podcast and much um, much like the podcasts we mentioned uh the author and publisher of this book are not paying us any money so you don't have to read the book you don't have to read you won't book. get any money because you did yeah well i am hoping that maybe they'll translate more of these novels into english that's my that's what mm. i get out of it um but i will say like if you really enjoyed this um yeah send us a message uh support the podcast in these other ways because you know 
in t- terms of whether or not when to decide doing something like this again, it's helpful to know that people liked yeah. it and found it fun so that we know it's uh, it's worth the extra effort. There it is. Help us spread the pod- word about the podcast in all these other ways. Um, tell your friends about it. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Most importantly, rate and subscribe us. That will get other people to see this. It's weird, strange, genre-smashing, niche-filling show. And uh, we make this in our free time, and the podcast runs on enthusiasm. So having people listen to it helps refill that tank. So uh, check it out and spread it out. And um, I've, I've written down, the only mystery left is how the podcast is going to end. <laughs> <laughs> you never come up with endings, Noah. No, the, the podcast uh, generally does. Does what? The jo- podcast generally has a built-in ending. Oh, that's true. Every week. That's true. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. so I'm open for suggestions. I think I think some kind of like, something like what the author did with like, well... I'm the author. Whoopsies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, we're the podcasters. Whoopsies. Whoopsies. <laughs> <laughs> it's no mystery that this has been Dying Message Challenge Murder in the Crooked House Part 2. Special Dying Message Challenge logo by Miriam Bloom. Music adapted from Face Punch by Jesse Spillane. A huge thank you to our contestants, Neil Bardhan, Kate Esposito, and Michael Savitsky. Next week, we'll be returning to our regular coverage of Detective Academy Q when we cover episode 23, which is about murder, trains, and children's books. But first, this. Are we all still here? Mmm. Thinking no. Oh. Uh, wait. What happened? Kate, is it just you and me? Yeah. Weird. Um, this. <laughs> I, I love how. Every every Sunday that I'm on this podcast, some technology glitch uh, <laughs> destroys my connection to Noah and Michael's home. Uh, I thought I thought we were pausing for dramatic effect. Yeah, I was like, uh oh, did we actually piss someone off? Um, on the upside, Zencaster's recording all of this, so I will. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a, a a note within the audio about the audio. Michael, Noah, if you're listening to this, you should probably mute me for the first four minutes because I was typing on my keyboard like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Last week, my uh, individual audio recording, I didn't have headphones on, so uh, it had all of you in the background of my recording. <laughs> um, last week, I, I didn't remember this until this morning. Last week was when we were getting um, like our AC installed or reinstalled. Mm-hmm. It's a whole saga. And if I remember right, I actually recorded this from my bed. That may be right. It was it was sure. a strange day, and I was like, ah, "This is suboptimal. Why?" why? <laughs> no, I did it. I did. That's right. I did. I ended up doing it from my desk, but just barely, um, because I remember writing my scores on my whiteboard uh, like a giant nerd. Anyways, how are you doing? How's your preschool year going? You guys are back. Oh, they are. What happened?